If you want to turn your Bibles to follow along with uh, our passage for the sermon today, it will be found in Luke chapter 23, starting with the 32nd verse is where we're going to be reading. I'll give you a few moments to turn there to Luke chapter 23, verse 32, if you want to follow along. I'll make a, a public admission that this is going to be kind of an odd scripture for us to be reading today um, on Palm Sunday. Today is traditionally thought of this really exciting day, this day of joy, this day of victory where we proclaim Jesus as King, where for a, a small moment in time in, in the narrative of the gospel, uh, the world seems to recognize uh, who Jesus is. Um, but one of the problems we find or one of the lessons we learn from the events of Palm Sunday in Jesus' life is that you can hail him as king and never really be committed to it. That you can lay your cloaks down, you can raise the palm branches, but when, when it comes time to be obedient, when it comes time to really follow him and stick with him, when, when things get tough, uh, that, that palm branch and waving may have just been kind of lip service. Uh, we get caught up in the emotions of it. And so what we're going to look at today is really to draw out the implications of making Jesus king or hailing Jesus king. Because many of us are here today because we have made that decision. We, and kind of figuratively in our hearts, we've, you know, we've waved the prom branch in our, head, in our hearts. We've, we've laid down the cloaks in our, in our hearts and invited Jesus in and said, you're king. But, but what does that mean? How, how does that live itself out? Um, throughout the rest of what happens this week. And so we're going to be reading from Luke chapter 23. We've been on this sermon series for Easter about seeing Jesus. And really the idea of today is seeing Jesus the forgiver or as forgiveness. And, and, our, and, our, and that's kind of uh, what this week is about. It's about the forgiveness of God. And so we're going to kind of set the stage for that today. Luke chapter 23, and we'll start reading with verse 32. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he's the Christ of God the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light faded, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus came calling out in a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle 
when they saw what had happened, taken place, returned home beating their breast. And all his acquaintances and the men who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. The Bible records seven sayings that Jesus said on the cross, that there's seven different times he speaks while hanging on the cross. And the first one is, is this one that we uh, have where it says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In Luke chapter 23, verse 34, another one was, Today thou shalt be with me in paradise, as he spoke to the criminal. Uh, in John chapter 19, it tells us Jesus spoke to one of his disciples and, and said, Woman, behold your son. Um, in Mark's gospel, it talks about, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Fulfilling another Old Testament scripture. Uh, John 19, he, he cried out that he was thirsty, filling out another scripture, a prophetic scripture. In John 19, 30, he said, It is finished. And many sermons have been preached on that, that one concept of, It is finished. And then finally, in Luke chapter 23, he says, Father, into thy hands I commit, commend your spirit. All these sayings are, are, are power-packed, and, and I just wanted you to see these, these different things, that, that seven different times Jesus made some very pointed statements while on the cross, and as we see him there, and just to realize how, how important that must have been. See, the, the act of crucifixion is really kind of a strangulation kind of thing. It, it stretches the body out so that breathing is very, very difficult. It puts all the weight of the body onto the diaphragm, and, and it stretches the person out so that, that it's really hard to breathe. And, and so to speak, a, a person would have to pull themselves up on the nails and push themselves against the nail on their feet to, to get into a position where they can take a breath and, and speak out. And so I assume that, that if Jesus had to go through the pain to raise himself up, take the breath and say something, what was in his mind was pretty important to say. That, that it was a, a, a painful act to even speak from the cross in the position that he was in. Considering the, the torture he'd been through, the, the, the ribbons that his back would have been in, pushing against that cross, the pawn nails, that, that these must have been important things that he wanted to say. Maybe next year we'll, our sermon series may be focusing on each and every one of these. We'll, we'll see where we get to next year. But, but for today, we're going to focus on just this one, this first one that he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The first thing on his mind, apparently, the, uh, the first saying that he says, the first thing that was worth raising himself up, taking that breath, and proclaiming to the world from the cross was this idea of the Father's forgiveness for them, for they knew not what they do. I was excited about sharing this sermon. I've been looking forward uh, to this coming because it's been about a month or so ago now, maybe even longer. Um, I, I read a, a devotional one day, and it took this verse, and it, it, it slanted it a little bit differently for me. It brought some more consideration, some deeper consideration. And, and the devotion started off by asking this question, who is the them? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, throughout my life, I've always just immediately pictured the, the most immediate people in that sentence, as you think about the sentence, those who were crucifying him. And, and I've always been just amazed and, and challenged and humbled and... Uh, overcome by the fact that, that he's sitting there on the cross asking for those very people who drove those nails in his hands, those people who are sitting at the foot of the cross casting lots for his own clothes as he hangs there probably naked in front of all the world to see. 
And he's saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But when we read that passage, and I don't know if you picked it up, and and if you get a chance, go back and look at all the people that are mentioned there. Because there's a whole list of people mentioned that are right around Jesus in this time. Here's the people we just read about. There's these criminals that are hanging on either side of him. There's the people, this reference to all the people who are showing up. And I ask myself, could some of these people who are now sitting there crying out, crucify, crucify, and, and making rude and comments to him, were they some of the same people that on this day were waving branches and laying down their coats saying, hallelujah, you know, blessed is he who came in the name of the Lord, and then five days later they're crying out, crucify? Is that some of the same people? There's the rulers, those who had wrongly accused him, afraid of losing their power and mocking him and scoffing at him, fulfilling, again, Old Testament scripture. There's the soldiers who are there doing that terrible deed. They had been used to crucify the the Savior. The centurion who's sitting there and recognizing the innocence of Jesus. All these people that we kind of think of bad. There's even mentioned these crowds that people are just showing up to, to see the spectacle and the whole town is turning out to see what's going on and, and, and amazed by the events. And we kind of dismiss these people, but there's other people that, that we might identify with more. There was Jesus's acquaintances, people who would call him friend, people who knew him, people who maybe had been there when he fed the 5,000 or seen him heal the, uh, the blind man in the temple, or the lame man, or, or, or seen or, or experienced. Maybe they were actually people who had themselves been blessed by Jesus standing there. Maybe the, the, lep, the, the, the leper who had been healed is there, watching the guy who healed him hang on a cross. Maybe there are these friends and these people who he knew. There's the women. It talks about the women who had followed him. And that, these were disciples. These were people who'd been following him around the countryside, ministering to him, taking care of him, looking out for him, who would proclaim him Lord. And we know from the other gospels that the disciples, many of them were standing right there. What that devotion challenged me on is to think this, is that maybe Jesus was saying, forgive them all. Maybe as he looks down, And sees not only the soldiers, but the crowds, and the people, and the rulers, and his acquaintances, and his disciples, and those who followed him, and the whole gathering. He's saying, Father, forgive them all. Because who on that day really knew what was going on? Who on that day knew what they were doing? I would submit to you, really no one but Jesus. Now, in a couple of days, when the resurrection happens, they all start to figure out what was going on. At least some of the disciples and those followers, they start to go, oh, they have these these multiple aha moments. Like, oh, that's what he meant when he said, destroy the temple in three days and I will raise it up. Oh, that's what he meant. Oh, that's what he meant. The light bulbs start to come on. But on this day, they're sitting there aghast. They're not sure what's going on. They don't know what they're doing. They don't know what's next. And they're all sitting there in awe. And so I just want us to think about maybe that perspective. And and we were singing the song, were you there when they crucified my Lord? Because we were. It's for all of us. 
that Jesus petitions the Father to forgive them. How many of us in our ignorance have sinned against the Lord? How many of us in our ignorance spent years away from the Lord and we needed the Father to forgive us because we didn't know what we were doing? But this is the call of Christ for us all. And so I want us today to see Jesus the forgiver um, and, and just really focus on forgiveness. As we, set, as we set the stage for Easter this year, as we set the stage for Holy Week, as we set this stage for all that we will do this week, as you will think about this probably more this week than any other week of the year, as we see Tenebrae coming, as we see our Good Friday communion coming, and then our ultimate celebration next Sunday of the resurrection and the hope we have in Christ, to think about forgiveness. Because number one, forgiveness is the purpose of Jesus. Really, it's forgiveness while Jesus came. Here's a passage, again, from Luke's gospel, the 24th chapter, starting with verses 46 and 47. And, it sa- and he said to them, this is Jesus speaking, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day and rise from the dead, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Here's the purpose statement of Jesus. That that repentance for forgiveness should be proclaimed in his name. Christ should suffer and on the third day rise for repentance and forgiveness, which are both sides or opposite sides of the same coin. And so this tells us as disciples, just ask this question. If this is Jesus' purpose statement, that, that he would bring repentance for forgiveness to the world, if that's what he was all about, if that's the whole reason he showed up is so that we could be forgiven, to, to ask and petition, Father, forgive them because, because they don't know what they're doing and I'm going to die in their stead. What does that mean for us, his disciples? his followers, his learners, his apprentices. If forgiveness is Jesus' purpose, then doesn't that make it our purpose? To proclaim forgiveness. And that's actually what it says. It says, he died for forgiveness. We're to proclaim repentance for forgiveness. It gives us kind of our marching orders. It tells us to proclaim. And the word proclaim simply means to tell, to tell others about repentance and forgiveness. These, these two cornerstones that go together in, in, the, in making a right relationship with God. And repentance is nothing but humans taking responsibility for their sin. I mean, repentance is saying, I know I've messed up. I know I have rebelled against the holy God. And I, and I want to turn from that. I, I want to change my mind, change my behavior, change the way I've living. And I'm going to own my rebellion. Now, responsibility is something that's out of vogue these days. Responsibility belongs to somebody else, almost always. Everybody else is responsible for my problems. And it's become out of popularity to talk about taking personal responsibility, but that's really what repentance is. And without that personal responsibility, there is no real forgiveness. Those two go hand in hand. And forgiveness is available to receive. That avail- uh, 
Forgiveness is why Jesus came. This is his purpose, to offer forgiveness to the world, for us to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins in his name because of what he did. We see this lived out early in the church. In Acts chapter 2, verse 38, the, one of the, the probably the very first sermon that was preached in a Christian church by Peter. Here's what Peter said at the close when they were cut to the quick, when they said, what shall we do? Peter says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. That's the message of the church. That's the message that the church should always be proclaiming and telling. And you will receive the Holy Spirit, by the way is the rest of that statement, right? <laughs> the, the, the evidence that you've repented and been forgiving is the presence of God coming into your life. This is the message of the church. This is the purpose of Jesus. This is why we have Holy Week for our forgiveness or the forgiveness of the world. This was Jesus's purpose, forgiveness. It's what the whole week's about. Forgiveness then is also, so forgiveness is Jesus' purpose. Forgiveness is the gift of God. Now, it's interesting in that statement, Jesus doesn't say, I forgive you. It's a petition. It's a prayer. It's what Keith was reading about this morning. It was an intercession. He's interceding already for them all, right? He's asking the Father to forgive them. And, and the Father is how Jesus refers to God. This is how he, he teaches us to pray to God, our Father who's in heaven. This is a cataclysmic change in how people address God Almighty as they started, we started referring to him as Father. And Jesus taught us that. This is how Jesus refers to God. And so he's asking God to forgive them. And so forgiveness is the gift of God Almighty to us. The Bible, uh, there's two verses that I'll highlight that teach us this. First in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7, it says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That our forgiveness is because the Father is rich in grace. Later on in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, it, it brings this whole idea of the grace of God back around and the forgiveness of God back around. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. That our forgiveness is the gift of God to us. A gift. One we don't deserve, a gracious, merciful gift. And what I want you to understand is that Jesus is the conduit of forgiveness. But the gift itself is forgiveness. We often think of Jesus as the gift. But Jesus is the method of getting us the gift. Here maybe is how I can try to explain it. We've all, we personally as a church, and we probably all have heard different stories of missionaries who go to Africa to establish wells, right, to, to open up clean drinking water for people in places that don't have clean drinking water. And, and usually the promotion goes something along the line. Give the gift of water, right? And, and what we're gifting people when we open up these wells in these countries that don't have clean drinking water, we're truly gifting them water. Now, we give them pipes 
and, and spigots and pumps and all kind of ways to get the water. But the, those things are the conduit to get the water to them. Now, that's a gift that we give them a pump and we give them the pipes and all. That's part of the gift too. But we want them to have the water. And in, some, in a similar way, Jesus, want, God wants us to have this gift of forgiveness. And Jesus is kind of the pipe or the pump that gets it out to us. But it's the, the forgiveness of God that's the gift that we need to hold on to. It's the water that we need to live. Forgiveness is that gift. What I want us to understand, and this is a simple but immensely profound statement. God forgives. It's a Christian statement. God forgives. This was the purpose of Jesus this is the gift of our God. And whatever we do, we need to let people know God is a forgiving God. You can be forgiven. Now, I know there's a lot of people who would respond to this idea, but Jason, you don't know what I've done. You don't know how bad I've been. You don't know the secret thoughts I have in my mind. You don't know all those things I've hidden from, each, uh, from other people in my life. You don't know what I think about at night or in my closet or when I drive. You don't know. You don't know. I don't care because God forgives. Jesus shows the amount of forgiveness God has while he's hanging on a cross and he's sitting there, Father, forgive them all for they don't know what they're doing. And so I, it doesn't matter what you've done. God is a forgiving God. Never sell yourself short. Never think you're beyond the love of God. Never think you're beyond the forgiveness of God. And we should never, ever think anybody else is beyond the forgiveness of God. We should always be praying, God, forgive, because this is your gift. This is what he wants the world to have. This is why he sent Jesus to pump forgiveness into this world that likes to condemn and chastise, and accuse. People need to know, and they need to know from us that God forgives no matter what. If you will but take it, try to soak it up, try to get to the end of God's forgiveness, you're never going to get there. God forgives. We need to be purveyors of forgiveness and not condemnation. This is our job as disciples, as people of the forgiver, we need to be proclaiming God forgives. We need to open up wells of forgiveness in our homes, in our families, in our communities, in our workplaces, in every area of our life. We need to now be that conduit of Jesus' forgiveness and God's gift to the world to proclaim forgiveness in his name. No matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter how bad you think you are, God will forgive you. Why? Because he said he would. That's what Jesus petitions God for on the cross. The first statement on the cross, Father, forgive them. So for you and I, for those of us who would wave the palm branch, who would cry out, Hosanna, glory to God. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Those of us who've, who've had that triumphal entry take place in our hearts and our souls and our lives, what does it mean for this to be Jesus' purpose and God's gift? What does that apply to us? 
If forgiveness is Jesus' purpose, if forgiveness is God's gift, then forgiveness is the mandate of the disciple. See, forgiveness is kind of like, like a coin. <laughs> There's heads and tails. There's one part we concentrate on quite a bit in the disciple world about forgiveness. One that we really enjoy. One that we bask in. One that causes us to say, amen, amen, God forgives. It's when we're talking about us receiving forgiveness. That's the head side of the tail. That's the head side of the coin. That we, we receive forgiveness. We talk about receiving forgiveness. We will, we will celebrate being forgiven. We will bask in the forgiveness of God. We will be grateful from a heartfelt place that God forgives us. We will, we will be brought to tears thinking about how much God has forgiven us. But that's only one side of the coin for the disciple. That's our first side for us, the, the head side. The tail side for the disciple is that now we're supposed to be giving forgiveness. Not just receiving, but giving forgiveness. And it's one of the things that, in my opinion, has apparently been dramatically and drastically underemphasized in the church for maybe centuries now. It's the forgiving of forgiveness. Because when we lack the giving of forgiveness, that brings disunity. And we've seen churches for a long time be at war with churches. We've seen churches split. We've seen Christians part from one another. We've seen us talk bad about each other. We have seen Christians be anything but forgiving to each other, much less those outside the church. And the giving of forgiveness is one of the best ways for us to display our discipleship of the Lord. And I'm not talking about major offenses. I'm not talking about big stuff. I'm talking about, you know, I didn't get my preference. My feelings got hurt. Uh, you didn't mention my name when I did this wonderful thing for the church. Or, or you forgot my birthday. Or you didn't visit me when I was sick. Or you didn't call me. Or you didn't send me an email. And these are just the things I need forgiving for. Right? Because I'm human. And I need it. And we get mad about these things. And instead of being forgiving and giving forgiveness, we usually get mad and we find our way to separate from our brothers and our sisters. Forgiveness is the mandate of the disciple. And disciples are called to display radical forgiveness. One of the things about this statement of Jesus being hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, it's crazy to think about someone hanging on a cross. It's radical. He's displaying for us how our forgiveness is supposed to be to all of them. It's radical in a couple of ways. First of all, in, in, in uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, we're going to read that. Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? <laughs> Peter thought he was really kind of putting it out there. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to shoot big, right? Not three times. I'm going for seven. Jesus is going to be impressed with me, you know. I just see him thinking that way. Maybe I identify with him too much. He said, Jesus said to him, I do not say seven times, but 70 times seven. 
And so the first radical display of our forgiveness is in quantity. That we should have a, a huge, an unlimited, an unending. It, it's a hyperbole. I, I know there's probably some people like, okay, that's what, 490 times. Okay, this is, you know, 49, this is 489. You got one more and that's it. That's all Jesus required of me because that's what Jesus said, right? That's what's in the red letters. I read it. After 490, you're cooked. Sorry. It's over. I, I can wash my hands of the whole forgiveness thing. You've gone too far. You have now completed, you have now committed the unpardonable sin, you know, and that's it. No, it's a hyperbole. Jesus expects his disciples to have an unending amount of forgiveness. Let me ask you this. Let's apply it personally. Oh, this is going to hurt me. Have you needed more than 490 forgivenesses from Jesus? I've needed, I've needed at least 500 for the same thing. Not if you start adding all the other ones together. Hard-headed. I'm stubborn. I'm willful. I need a lot. I've taken a lot. And if the Lord lets me live a few more years, I'm going to need a lot more. I'm just being honest with you. I ha- this is going to surprise you. I haven't reached perfection yet. Like I said, I just listed out all the things I need for giving down here on this other part. And so the quantity of our forgiveness. There should never be a place in a disciple's life where I've reached my limit of forgiveness. We should never limit our forgiveness. Now that's radical. That's crazy. But that's what's expected of the disciple. Only because that's what we've been given. It's okay, we can receive, but we got to give too. The second kind of radical forgiveness comes from Matthew chapter 18. The, the rest of this verse, that question sets up a parable. Jesus tells it, and you probably know it, and you may remember it, called the unforgiving servant. It's a story about a servant who owes his master a huge debt, a, a, a debt he would never be able to pay in a lifetime. Right? And the master calls him in and says, well, you're going to pay me. And the, and the servant throws himself down on begs and pleads and wails before the master. And the master says, your debt's forgiven. And just writes it off. Well, that same servant goes out and finds one of his fellow servants who owes him about a day's wages or, or a much smaller amount. And he demands from his fellow servant, pay me back today. And, the, and, the, and the, his fellow servant does the same thing. He throws himself down. He cries. He begs for forgiveness. But the servant says no and has him thrown in jail. And it's it's an example from Jesus. He's talking not only about the quantity of our service, but he's talking about the quality of our forgiveness. That that we need to be able to forgive radical amounts. That, That the quality that we have been forgiven a whole lot more than we're ever going to be asked to forgive. And so the quality of our forgiveness, it will have a high cost sometimes, but it's never going to be the cost of what the master gave us. And so we need to be willing. Here's the hard statement for me. This is one of the most hard statements I'll ever probably say. As I said, there should be no limit to our forgiveness. There should be nothing we're not willing to forgive. There should be nothing we're not willing to forgive. Unless 
what's happened to you is greater than the holy creator leaving paradise to die a blameless death in your place on a cross. Now, if you say, what's happened to me tops what Jesus did, well, then I can let you, you and him can argue that out. But unless you've suffered more than Christ himself, the perfect holy creator of all the world who died in our place, there should be nothing we aren't willing to forgive. Now, I know there are some truly horrific, awful, horrible things that humans do to other humans. I've been the recipient of more than one or two. And I know some of you have been the recipient of things much worse than me. And for us to sit here and say the expectation of following Christ is that we will never pay, we will never forgive more than we've already been forgiven. That's a radical, crazy idea for us to hold to. And probably one of the best examples that I'm aware of, one of the ones that touches my heart the most, is by one of our sisters named Corey Tenboom, who spent her life in a concentration camp. And her sister, who she loved dearly, died in that concentration camp. And some years after the war, she was speaking at an engagement, and one of the guards who worked at her concentration camp, a German man, came up to her and asked her to forgive him. The very guard who watched over the very death of her own sister and, and tormented her in, in a concentration camp. And if you read her story, you can, she talks about the internal turmoil that she had to deal with. But then she realized, this is nothing compared to what Jesus forgave me. And that's a radical type of forgiveness that we need to give to this world. And finally, the radical forgiveness is it needs to be priority. I've been working on, and you'll hear some more about this hopefully, and then as I kind of work on a, a kind of outlaying a, a, a discipleship pathway. And there's, there's three things that in that pathway that I think the church has kind of lost focus of, and three things that Jesus seems to make a very huge priority in his life. The first one is self-denial, the second one is forgiveness, and the third one is unity. Now, these are the three things that, that Jesus is, is non-negotiable about in many ways. And forgiveness is one of those things that needs to be a radical priority in our lives. Not just receiving it, but we need to make it a priority to forgive other people. Because in that story, in that passage or that, that parable of the unforgiving servant, here's how it ends. This is Matthew chapter 18, verses 34 and 35. This is what Jesus says as he closes out that parable. When, when the master finds out that the servant didn't forgive his fellow servant, it says, and the anger of his master delivered him to jailers until he should pay his own debt. Verse 35. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. The very person that Jesus on the cross cried out to, Father, forgive them, he teaches his disciples that if you don't forgive others as well as you've been forgiven, the Father is going to hold you responsible. He's not going to forgive you. Forgiveness is a non-negotiable. Giving of forgiveness and displaying this radical forgiveness to the world is a non-negotiable for God. Now, let me ask you just this question. What if God meant what he said? What if God really meant 
If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven. Would it become a bigger priority in your life? Would we, like, would you, like, okay, I'm waking up every day figuring out who did me wrong and how I'm going to forgive them. I mean, I would probably do that hourly. If my own forgiveness, if he really means that, right? Wouldn't that really radically change how we act in giving forgiveness? We're all about receiving it, but wouldn't we make giving it a much larger priority in our life? That because if I don't do this, I'm not getting it myself. And look what God's already done for me. Earlier in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus had set the stage for this teaching. When he teaches the disciples to pray the Lord's Prayer, at the end of it, he goes, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. He was identified with the trespassers. He brought forgiveness to the trespassers. And we're supposed to forgive those who trespass against us. Those who sin against us. What if God really means that? Wouldn't that change the priority it has in our life? What does it look like if this becomes a priority? Now, here's a, a study, and you, I know you can't see it. I'm going to blow it up in just a second from, from a a Bible study that I do called Call to Obedience. If you want to learn more about, if you want to process, if you want to make priority of, for, uh, forgiveness a priority in your life, you, I, I need to work on this. I need to learn more about this. I'll give you this study. I can make as many copies of this as I want to. And it walks through forgiveness very, very well. And here's a, a threefold commitment that forgiveness is. I will not bring up the transgression to the offender. So those who have offended me, I won't bring it up to them. I won't I won't talk to them about it. I won't bring up my transgressions to others. I won't gossip. I won't vent. I won't tell others how badly I've been treated by someone else. And I won't even allow myself to dwell on it. That's really what forgiveness is. And if you want to walk through this, if you want to learn this, if you are sitting here today saying, I need to make this a bigger priority in my life, let's get together. I'll give you this. You can work on it on your own. If you want to walk somebody, if you want somebody to walk you through it, if somebody to hold you accountable, somebody to help you make forgiveness a priority in your life, because it is a non-negotiable for God. I will help you. There's lots to do. But here's what I want you to think about this week. Because you're going to think a lot about Jesus on the cross this week. Here's the question. Don't we owe it to God to forgive them, whoever they are? Don't we owe it to God to forgive them all? I mean, this was what he said on the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And we, as the recipients of that radical forgiveness, may be the givers of that radical forgiveness. This is how we display the love of God, the gift of God, the purpose of Jesus to the world, by doing the same thing he came and did. Forgive those. We kind of owe it to him, because we've certainly received it. May we spend this week concentrating on how to give it to all those in our lives who need it. This is what it means to be a disciple.